St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. Election Day may be two months away, but in many states, voting in the 2020 election has already begun. We covered mail-in voting in a podcast episode back in April, just as stay-at-home orders were beginning to be put in place because of COVID-19. But now, with the general election looming and the coronavirus pandemic showing no signs of receding, mail-in voting has taken on even greater prominence. North Carolina kicked off the election last week, when the state became the first in the U.S. to send mail-in ballots to any eligible voters who had requested one. Upwards of 300,000 North Carolinians have already requested mail-in ballots, ten times as many as had done so by this point in 2016. The sharp increase of ballot requests in the Tar Heel State is typical of the surge in mail-in voting we're expecting to see this election cycle. It's also become a heated political flashpoint, and a lot of listeners have been writing me with questions about how it's going to work leading into the November 3rd election. The process can be confusing, and the rules governing mail-in voting vary sharply from state to state. So to help us understand what you need to know before casting your mail-in ballot, I called up Miles Parks, NPR's resident voting expert. I mean, the 2020 election, without using hyperbole, is going to be different than any election that we've ever had in American history. Uh, and the biggest reason is mail-in voting. After that, we'll hear from another great elections reporter, Grace Panetta of Business Insider, who'll answer questions you, the Wake Up to Politics audience, sent in about voting in 2020. My name is Ken. This is Leslie from Lakeland. And I'm from Southern California. I'm Michael Alexander in Seattle, Washington. S.J. Pendergraft from Brooklyn, New York. My name is Riffy O'Brien, Oakland, California. I'm Gabe Fleischer, and from St. Louis Public Radio and me, this is Wake Up to Politics. About 160 million voters will be eligible to vote by mail in 2020. That's about three-fourths of the electorate, far more than in any previous election cycle in U.S. history. And if estimates hold up, about half of those voters, as many as 80 million Americans, are expected to cast mail-in ballots. That's more than double the number of mail-in ballots that were cast in the 2016 election. With the coronavirus pandemic pushing voters away from casting traditional ballots at their polling places, mail-in voting is emerging as a crucial mechanism for Americans to make their voices heard this fall. But in many states, casting a mail-in ballot requires a long, multi-step process that can be difficult to navigate. Miles Parks, NPR's voting reporter, is here to help you understand what you need to do. Step one is going to be the same, whether you want to vote in person or by mail. You need to register first off. And I think that's important to remember about mail voting too, because There's a lot of misinformation out there about, especially the states that mail ballots to every registered voter. That last part, every registered voter, is a really important part of this because it's not like the government is sending ballots to every person who just knocks on the elections office door or who, you know, just happens to live in a state. You have to register to vote first. So you register to vote. Sometimes you make a request. Sometimes you're required to 
also specify an excuse. So that excuse provision in most states has been relaxed uh, as a result of the pandemic. Next, once you've registered and requested a mail-in ballot if you need to, it should be sent in the mail to your address. Now it's time to fill the ballot out. Miles said that a key thing many voters forget is that after you've selected the candidates you want to vote for, you also have to sign your ballot envelope to verify that it's you casting the vote. Your ballot won't be counted without a signature, and it's important to also be careful about how you sign the ballot envelope, because election authorities could throw it out if it doesn't match previous signatures they have from you on file. You think, okay, well, what can I really do about my signature? One, election officials say a lot of people just kind of scribble on it, assuming that people will just take it no matter what the signature is, but they actually do verify that against whatever signature you used either at the DMV or wherever you registered to vote. So what one election official told me was that people should really worry, people should really not use their grocery store signature was how she put it. They should use their kind of official signature to make sure it matches. But the other thing is that a quarter of mail ballots that got rejected in 2016 were rejected because they didn't have a signature at all. So that's a case where somebody just forgot to do something or didn't see on the outside of the envelope where there was a signature required. So then when it comes time to submit your ballot, most voters will have a few options. And you can use the Postal Service uh, to mail it back to your elections office or some states and localities offer these drop boxes, which are these massive, you know, really secure uh, boxes that are usually uh, surveilled by cameras 24 hours a day, sometimes watched by actual in-person guards. You could drop your ballot off that way, or you can actually, in some places, take it to the polling place on the day of the election and turn it in there. It basically just cuts out the Postal Service if you're scared you're mailing it in maybe too close to the deadline or something. You have another route to do that. It's important to note that not every state offers these drop boxes. And even if they do, rules vary about who can take advantage of them. Because every state and locality has authority to conduct their elections differently, there's a wide range of systems in place throughout the U.S. Some places, like here in Missouri, make a distinction between absentee voting and mail-in voting, and have different requirements for who can receive each one and how they can be returned. But in other states, like California, all registered voters are mailed a ballot before the election and can drop it off in person or mail it back. We've included a link in the description to a helpful guide from 538 that will help you discover the rules in your specific state. But no matter where you live, another critical thing to remember is timing. Once you've received your ballot in the mail, it's important not to wait too long before sending it back. Most of the time that mail ballots get rejected, it's because they got to where they needed to get to a little too late. So if you can read on your mail ballot that you get, or you can read it on your local elections website, basically that the drop dead date and time that your elections administrator has to have your mail ballot. In some states, they will have, they have a rule that says your mail ballot just has to be postmarked by the state, but can be maybe received a week later, three days later. Some states say the election administrator has to have the mail ballot in their hand by say 7 p.m. Uh, on election day. So those rules kind of are really different depending on where you live, but deadlines, which is why you know, you talk to postal service officials and you talk to election officials, and they say the biggest thing to be thinking about with this huge increase in mail voting that's coming this year is try to mail it back. If you're going to use the mail, try to mail it back really early. You know, do not wait until a couple of days before the election. They say two weeks before the election would be great, but do 
you should be thinking about a week before the election. That ballot needs to be getting into the mail uh, for to make sure it gets there on time. There's obviously been a lot of scrutiny related to mail-in voting recently, but Miles said voters should be comforted by the fact that usually, when things go wrong with mail-in ballots, it's because of problems that they themselves can watch out for and prevent. I think it's important to realize that most of these things are voter-controlled issues in terms of things most of the time that the voter either missed or had some sort of control over, which I think actually can kind of give voters a little bit of confidence. This isn't the system. The system didn't really screw it up. It's a lot of times voters either forgetting to do something or doing something late. So number one is deadlines. I also asked Miles about a few claims President Trump and other politicians have been making about mail-in voting to help you sort through what's true and what's not before you cast your ballot. One claim that the president's made recently is that mail-in ballots are susceptible to being forged by foreign governments. Which has no basis in any truth. I was on a call this week with some FBI officials and they said they've seen no evidence that there's any effort. They've never seen anything like this, basically. And so that's something I think that voters can't really do anything about anyway, if that was going to be the case, but that the FBI says they've never seen this before and election officials say it's basically impossible. So that one you can kind of toss away. President Trump has also suggested that mail-in voting is dangerous because once a ballot is mailed to someone's house, anyone could use it, not just its intended recipient. At one point, he even suggested that people's pets would be able to receive ballots and vote with them. Dead people, all that stuff. Uh, because this term universal mail-in voting or all vote by mail states is how some, uh, all mail states is how some people call them, I think it does. People's minds immediately think that every person is going to get a ballot, but it's just not true. I mean, that that part of it, I mean, registering to vote is a process where you have to, uh, you know, come into contact with an elections office and, you know, tell them who they are and where who you are and where you live. There, there is a disconnect with this idea that mail ballots going out to everyone even more broadly is an issue in the sense that, like, yes, there are some people who have died since they registered to vote or since they last voted. And like if you voted in the 2018 election and you died in the two years since, you're still probably registered to vote in that state if you're in California or something. And you there may be a ballot that comes because to, to that house because voter lists just aren't maintained that frequently. But what the kind of claim about it misses is that there's a verification step on the back end like somebody would have to send that ballot in and not only send it in but forge the signature correctly that matches the voter registration file for that voter for that vote to count and so you think about if somebody's dog gets a ballot that's actually not really an issue in the sense that a it doesn't happen no dogs are registered to vote that i know of in california or anything but b the dog is not going to be, you know, somebody can't sign a ballot for whoever. That is just a huge verification step that just kind of gets missed in that broad claim, which I think is the one that comes up the most. Remember what Miles said earlier. All ballots need to be signed by voters to be counted. And sometimes they even get rejected when it is the right voter signing them, but just not in the way they signed when they registered to vote. So it's important to keep in mind that there's more to mail-in voting than officials sending a ballot and then counting it when it gets sent back. There's also several steps taken before the ballot is counted to verify that the right voter cast it. It's a generally secure process, although that isn't to say there are zero cases of mail-based voter fraud. In fact, studies show that fraud is slightly more likely to occur with mail-in voting 
than in-person voting. But Miles told me, both are still incredibly rare in the United States. When election experts actually look at the entirety of the country, they say that there's no widespread election fraud happening in this country. And people have really studied this for years and years and years. And there's just no evidence that this actually happens at a scale to where people need to really worry about it. It's still such a minuscule amount. Like even in the states where they have been running all mail elections, elections completely by vote by mail for years, there have been, you know, virtually no fraud cases. We're talking about handfuls in, in hundreds of millions of ballots cast. And so when you think about that, uh, I think it allows the fraud narrative to kind of fester without being based in any real truth. Miles's last piece of advice was to encourage voters to follow not just the elections themselves, but the mechanisms behind them as well. Because contrary to what you might think, he said you'll actually emerge feeling more confident about the integrity of our voting process. I think it's really, at least for me as a voting reporter, it makes me so, I feel like when I go on Twitter or Facebook, I feel like bulletproof in the sense that like, I am so hyper aware of people trying to manipulate me for political gain, which is happening. It's not just like Russia posting memes. Like It is happening domestically in terms of people want to sway your opinion and want you to get emotionally invested and have a reaction that is beneficial to them. Either makes you vote a certain way or makes you purchase something or makes you act a certain way. And so I think being informed, really informed about the mechanisms of voting makes it a lot easier to not be manipulated, basically, and not have an emotional reaction to something that may not be as big of a deal. I think it Oddly, I feel like having a nuanced understanding of elections has made me like less angry of a voter, not more angry of a voter. I feel like a lot of times on both sides of the aisle, when people are getting really, really angry and emotionally upset about something related to voting, sometimes it's legitimate and sometimes it's kind of a almost like a lack of a nuanced understanding. It's an oversimplification. And if you kind of like get down to the weeds, you, I find that you actually end up getting a little bit more confident in the democracy and in the system. And so I think it just makes you less, less easily manipulated by kind of external forces. And it, it will just make you more optimistic about the state of the country, which I honestly believe is like a really important thing right now. When we come back, I'll talk to another reporter well-versed in election administration and answer some of your questions about voting in 2020. In the last segment, Miles Parks of NPR talked about the safety of mail-in voting and said that most Americans actually don't have that much to be worried about. But I know that many of you still have questions or concerns. So I asked all of you to send in your questions, and I posed a few of them to Grace Panetta, an ace election reporter at Business Insider. The first question she tackled was about a voter's ability to track their mail-in ballot after sending it to make sure it's been counted by election authorities. Hi, this is Leslie from Lakeland. I have been receiving my vote by mail ballot for about two years, but every time we vote, I chicken out and I take it to the 
polling place and turn it in and vote in person because I am concerned about voter suppression. So here's my question. How do I find out if my vote by mail ballot has been accepted? Here's what Grace had to say. Yeah, so a growing number of states are now using ballot tracking systems, which are really great. Um, Basically, it's when the election office puts a barcode um, or on a ballot um, or some kind of identifiable tracking number. It's usually a barcode. And this, you know, special barcode allows voters to track when their request has been received by their elections office, when their ballot has been sent to them. And on the other side, when they send their ballot back, um, you know, when the ballot's been received, you know, they can confirm receipt and also can confirm it's been counted. Um, Also in states that use signature matching, most of them have a process by which a voter is identified if there's an issue with their signature, some kind of a discrepancy. So yeah, it's definitely a good thing that more and more states are using ballot tracking that just allows voters to simply go online and see what the status of their ballot is. So definitely look into whether that is, um, that's part of the system in your state. More and more states are doing that now. Um, And if your state is not using ballot tracking, the way to figure out if your ballot has been received or accepted is, you know, just to be in contact with your um, elections office. And so if you send your ballot back, you know, two weeks, 10 days, or like a week in advance, there's a very high chance that it'll get there um, and it'll be received. But if you ever, you know, are nervous about it or are maybe worried that your vote wasn't counted, you know, the best bet is to just be in contact with your local election officials and see what um, their, their process is. Our next question was about the local authorities running these elections and whether they'll be equipped to handle the flood of mail-in ballots that are coming in a few weeks. I'm Michael Alexander in Seattle, Washington, a state where all voting is by mail. While I have questions about the post office, such as the rationale for removing mail sorting machines, my big question is about the capabilities of election departments and officials in other states and counties where voting by mail is likely to be so much higher than in the past that new management, procedures, and equipment are needed. That challenge for each county is where mismanagement, delays, and miscounts are more likely to occur. How do we avoid that? Yeah, definitely. This touches on a really, really key point, which is that even before the pandemic, a lot of election offices were understaffed and underfunded. And even despite that, have been able to provide, you know, keep running elections and provide amazing service for voters. Um, And now, you know, that's exactly right, where it's not so much the Postal Service's capacity but what individual state, local, and county governments are doing to support their election officials as many states are gearing up for, you know, a five to tenfold increase in the percentage of voters uh, voting by mail. And, you know, thankfully, we're seeing both um, among Democrats and Republican states, a lot are a lot of states and counties are providing that additional support to officials, whether it's, you know, more faster, like processing machines, um, more technology, Um, legislatures and officials allowing more time for the processing of ballots. Uh, All of these things are some things that states are undertaking, but, you know, most election administration in the United States is conducted at the county level and decentralized to the most local levels of government. So it's very hard to say what kind of, you know, widespread issues we may see. Um, Definitely, you know, the lack of funding, the pandemic has really stretched state and local governments very thin. Um, and then on the federal side, you know, the CARES Act gave 400 million in election assistance to 
states um, to use to help them run elections. But that was, you know, back in the spring, a lot of that money has already been spent on states' primaries. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, definitely just broadly, um, the, the, the majority of cases, uh, election officials are able to do their jobs under really, really difficult circumstances and will do that. But, you know, this is a continuing issue of these offices just being underfunded and underinvested in. Our next question is about military mail-in voting, a time-honored American tradition. Hi, Gabe. This is S.J. Pendergraft from Brooklyn, New York. I served seven years in the Army and voted by mail-in ballot for local, state, and federal elections. If they stop mail-in voting for civilians, will they also include the military? For many of us, that was the only way to vote. Grace Panetta. So the members of the armed services have been voting by mail um, for centuries, you know, traced back to the Civil War. It was Abraham Lincoln, I think, who pioneered um, a lot of absentee voting and that whole concept for people who are fighting uh, in the Civil War. So military service members have been, you know, obviously casting their ballots by mail um, for uh, a long, long time now. And actually, uh, military and overseas voters and their families are covered um, under federal law by the uh, Uniformed Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act, um, of, which was passed in the 1980s. And that federal law allows uh, military service members, their families, diplomats, and you know private citizens living abroad to cast um, an absentee ballot. So that you know right to vote absentee, but for military and overseas voters is protected under federal law. And there are also uh, certain conditions and you know certain procedures that people need to follow, obviously requesting their ballot far in advance. Um, and then different states have different rules actually on how absentee ballots from overseas and military voters can be submitted. So some only allow people to send their ballots back through the mail. Others allow people overseas to fax in their ballots or email in a scanned copy from overseas. So definitely the right of military and overseas voters to vote absentee in federal elections is protected under federal law. That's something, you know, that's been established for decades. Um, and obviously, you know, this year with the pandemic, uh, obviously, if you're voting from overseas or in the military, it's super important to get your ballot in as soon as possible, given all the problems the pandemic has posed. Another question we received was about what kind of postage you should add to your mail-in ballot. Hi, my name is Riffy O'Brien, and I live in Oakland, California. Here's my question. Should I add a first-class stamp to my already stamped mail-in ballot to assure its safe arrival? Thank you. Here's what Grace had to say. So in this varies state by state. Some states have prepaid postage for absentee ballots and some do not. Um, now, obviously, the, for the ballots um, this year, the U.S. Postal Service has their own various policies on how they process ballots. Um, and even though, you know, they many of them say that you have to affix a first-class postage. The Postal Service does, by and large, deliver ballots that lack postage and because ballots are marked on the outside as election mail and get a special stamp and seal. So the Postal Service for this year has said that it will deliver ballots that lack postage and that, you know, regardless of what rate that states pay to have election mail and ballots sent at, it will deliver those, those designated election mail, pieces of mail at first-class rates or faster. So that's two to five days Obviously, you know, just to be extra safe, you should be putting postage on your ballot if your state is not prepaying it. 
um, and you know, a first class stamp uh, will definitely serve that purpose. But yes, yeah, so the Postal Service has committed this year to delivering all election mail um, at a first class read or faster. And finally, we got a question about how mail-in voting will impact what results you see on election night. Hi, Gabe. My name is Ken, and I'm from Southern California. There's been a lot of commentary in the news about how the expected shift this fall from in-person voting to mail-in voting will affect the results that we see on election night versus the results we see in the days following. My question is, how will that shift from in-person to mail-in voting affect what we hear from exit polling? Grace Panetta. This is a great question and something, you know, all of us in the political journalism world are thinking about. Um, I mean, I don't know for sure. It's hard to say definitively, but I think exit polling just in general will probably be scaled back this year due to the pandemic um, because, you know, it involves interviewing people as they're leaving their polling place. So that may be scaled back. I know Edison Research does the exit polling for most of the major networks. I'm not entirely sure what their plans are whether they, you know, are planning to do it at all or in some safe, socially distant way, if that's even possible. So definitely exit polling will probably be uh, scaled back as a result of the pandemic. And if it does happen, you know, it'll be less, um, you know, useful and descriptive as it's been in previous years, because as the question noted, a higher and higher percentage of Americans are voting not on election day at the polling place, but either early or by mail and, you know, can't be interviewed for an exit poll. So, you know, definitely we'll probably see reduced amounts of that and, you know, the reduced usefulness as more and more people um, are voting by mail. Building off that question, Grace also gave us a preview of what Election Day 2020 might look like because of the mail-in ballot influx. As we've said, the verification process for mail-in ballots can take a while. And in some states, officials can't even begin to count mail-in ballots until election day, even if they've already received them. So with mail-in ballots growing so much in use, November 3rd probably won't be like the dramatic election night events many of us are used to. So the number one thing um, to know and expect is that we, the American public, may not know the winner of the presidential race on election night and other key Senate races. I think it's pretty, I mean, you never want to say anything definitively in 2020, but as of now, it is looking pretty unlikely that will have enough results um, for major networks to declare a winner. And so in previous years, the reason why, you know, network TV networks, the Associated Press, et cetera, have been able to call election results is because in most states, there's a pretty small percentage of the population voting by mail. I think in 2016, um, in half of states, it was less than 10% um, of voters casting their ballots by mail. So when you have a very small proportion of absentee voting and most people are voting in person and you have those returns it's you know a lot easier to call elections because you just have more results but this year we're going to see a a much higher proportion of people voting by mail Um, and obviously mail ballots just take a lot longer to count and process than votes cast in person Um, a lot of states are now accepting ballots that are postmarked by election day but arrive after so not even all ballots are going to be received on election day and there just isn't going to be enough information and enough returns for a lot of races to be called, including the presidential race. And it also varies from state by state. So Florida, for example, um, has had a pretty you know, high percentage of their electorate voting by mail over the past several years. And 
they, they're just election infrastructure has a lot more experience processing mail ballots. And then if you look at some of the other states, like especially Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, they are going to see a much higher proportion of people voting by mail this year. And in all three of those states, election officials aren't even allowed to begin processing mail ballots until the day of the election. Whereas in other states, you know, election officials can start doing things like signature matching and, you know, verifying ballots and, you know, making sure that they're all good to go forward and be counted, you know, days or weeks before election day. That's not the case um, in those three swing states. And given how important those are going to be to the presidential race, you know, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see a significant um, amount of results from those states in order for anyone to make a confident call about the winner on election night. My thanks to Grace Panetta and Miles Parks for helping us break down mail-in voting and what it will look like in 2020. You can find them on Twitter at Grace underscore Panetta or at Miles Parks. Or you can find me at Wake Up Number 2 Politics. Gabe Fleischer is the host and creator of Wake Up to Politics. This podcast is a co-production of Gabe Fleischer and St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is the political editor. Sound design and mixing by Aaron Dorr. The music you heard on today's episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. The Wake Up to Politics podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, the League of Women Voters, a nonpartisan organization working to inform and encourage active participation in government. Thanks to Lara Hamden for additional narration. Look for new episodes every other Monday here and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Gabe Fleischer.